Well, is it worth it to be a Christian? That's the question that we began considering last week. Is it worth it to be a Christian? Uh, what if we experience hardships? What if we um, start getting turned down for job offers or being refused for adoption or being falsely accused of hate speech uh, with threats of persecution? Uh, if we're experiencing such things, is it still worth it to be a Christian? Put it quite simply, if, if, if holding on to something is increasingly getting difficult, causing hardship, causing suffering and strife, uh, why not just let it go? Why would you choose, despite the growing hostility and difficulties, because you hold on to that thing, why would you continue to, to grip it and never let go of it? Well, it would be simply for this reason. That you know that what you have in your grip is so precious that you'd be a fool to let it go. It is because you know that you have such joy in that possession that it doesn't matter what difficulty, what hardship may come upon you, this joy is greater than all of it. That's why you never let it go. Now, it's been possible uh, over the last 300 years in Britain to sort of be a Christian without too much hardship and difficulty. At one level, it's been possible to coast as a Christian in Britain. Of course, that was not always true. Uh, this is the, the land that has burnt people at the stake, uh, that pursued the covenanters, and that many people were killed. And so this is a land that has known persecution of Christians in the past. But by and large, the last 300 years have been pretty straightforward. But now we're starting to feel the sort of the chilled winds of a hostile secularism. Our politicians seem determined to redefine marriage so that everybody's marriage is now downgraded to some sort of civil partnership. It seems as if sexual rights now will always trump religious rights. And freedom of conscience. And so it's a good time for us to be freshly considering, as, as it starts getting a bit more awkward, what a precious thing we have in our hands by faith. And that's exactly the tack that uh, Peter took as he wrote to Christians in the first century who were starting to feel hostility from their culture and their society around them. Uh, you can see at the end of the letter of First Peter that uh, he, he writes the purpose for which uh, the, the letter was sent. And he says, I, I wrote to you briefly encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. That's the purpose of this letter. To remind us, this really is the true grace of God. You'd be crazy to walk away from this. So let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, and you'll find that on page 1,217 in the church Bibles, page 1,217, and we'll take the time to read the first 12 verses, even though we're kind of just focusing on verses 10 to 12. I just love these verses so much that it's worth reading them again. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, 
to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. This is God's word. Now please keep your Bibles open as we examine uh, these uh, verses from 10 to 12. So as we've, we've read the context, you can see that he says, yes, there may be suffering, there may be testing times, but remember that there's great joy. And we've saw, seen that great joy uh, comes from remembering our new birth. That God in his amazing mercy has caused us to be born again, Peter says. And, and that new birth gives us enormous privileges. We have a living hope. We have an everlasting inheritance. And um, it's not just wishful thinking. It's all rooted in the historical event of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And it's not just doctrine and ideas. It's intensely personal. Uh, we have a living hope because we have an ever-living Savior. And we are looking forward to the day when the person that we love, the Lord Jesus Christ, we will see him in person and we will meet with him in person on the day that he's revealed in glory. Uh, this is some of the thoughts that, that Peter has reminded them of to, 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 to cause them to give praise to God and to remember the great reasons for joy that we have even as we may experience difficulties and hardships as a Christian. Well, our section of scripture today 
um, Peter continues to, to remind us what a privilege is ours to have this salvation. Do you see that, see that in verse 10? Concerning this salvation. And there are a few more things that he wants us to be aware of. And if I can summarize, it's something like this. The Old Testament prophets and writers longed to understand what we know today of God's grace. They longed to understand what we know now fully of God's grace today. They longed to know it. See that in verse 10? Let's read it again. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you and searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Well, it's a rainy day and this is a great day to start chewing and meditating on this text. There's more in here than we'll be able to express today. There's so much packed in here. But just some basic questions about this salvation. How long have people known about this salvation? Uh, was it just something that they found out about 2,000 years ago? And Peter says, well, no. For hundreds of years before that, we've known about this great salvation. The Hebrew scriptures were completed 400 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. And they cover a time span of about 1,600 years, if you count uh, Abraham around the time of 2000 BC. Now, why do we have the Hebrew Scriptures uh, in the Bible? Why do we have these 39 books of the Old Testament, as we know them, in our Bible? Because in them, God is revealing himself to us. And in them, God is promising this salvation to a broken world, a world broken by sin, and he's promising salvation that was going to come through a king. The prophets were those who received revelation from God, and they were directed to uh, declare them to their generation and to write them down so that future generations could see these promises and also trust this same God. Peter, in his second letter, uh, writes this for prophecy never came never had its origin in the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit I don't think there'll be too many boats sailboats on the fourth today will there John not too many today uh, because uh, you might want to direct the craft how you want to direct it. But the truth is the winds are so strong today, they're going to carry you wherever they want to carry you. And that's the image that is going on uh, in Second Peter. It's as if these, these writers are like sailboats. And God's Spirit came and moved upon them in such a way that uh, they were driven along. So that what they spoke and what they wrote were the very words of God. Yes, you can read uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And you'll hear something of their own personality, something of their own life. Uh, that is true. But God so worked in them that what they wrote is that they wrote the very words of God. Now at our Contagious Conference, which was uh, back in August. Uh, remember the summertime? It was only last week, but uh, <laughs> it's gone now. And, uh, but at our Contagious Conference... 
somebody brought a huge jigsaw puzzle. And as the week went on, people kind of went past this table and they picked up a few pieces and they sort of looked at it and they, and they added to the jigsaw puzzle. And it's as if really this, this great plan of salvation is like some 3,000 piece jigsaw puzzle. And each of the prophets were given just a few more pieces. And as they received this revelation from God, they looked with utter fascination at the pieces that they were given. And they sought diligently to work out how they fitted into previous prophecies. And how did they find their place? And they worked away, adding to the picture. Now they didn't see the whole thing, but they knew that it was pointing forward. And of course, God knows the whole picture. I mean, the Bible tells us that before he even created the whole world, he had planned this amazing plan of salvation. And he progressively revealed it through the history of Israel, through his promises and how he fulfilled them. And so piece by piece, the the puzzle was being put together. And what these verses are telling is that God's Holy Spirit was at work in these prophets foretelling what would take place. And who's, who's at the center of this plan? Well, you don't have to be in Sunday school to know the answer to this. The answer is the Christ, the promised Messiah King. Look at how God's Holy Spirit is described in verse 11. The Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of Christ was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Now, predicting the glories of the Christ was not the surprise here. Um, That was expected to see the king who would save his people from their enemies and, and bring them into an everlasting kingdom. Well, that, of course, would be glorious. The great puzzle, the great surprise was predicting how do the sufferings of Christ relate to the glories of Christ? How do they fit together? Now, here is the main point of Peter's passage for us today. Look at the privilege that is ours. What the Old Testament prophets and writers longed to understand and only saw in part is the salvation that we fully see in the coming of Jesus, who is the Christ. They long to see the big picture that we see now because Jesus has come. I don't know how you read the Bible yourself. I certainly hope you make an opportunity every day to read part of the Bible. It is the best use of your time you could have in any part of the day to read your Bible and to pray. And if you don't have a Bible reading plan, somewhere on the stairwells, hopefully there's still the Robert Murray McShane Bible reading plan. And uh, if you choose to do that plan, you'll read through the Bible in a year and you'll read through the New Testament and the Psalms twice in that year. And if you keep doing that year after year after year, you just discover the most wonderful things. Uh, You just see over and over how God makes amazing promises and how those promises are fulfilled both in the Old Testament and then in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you do this, you'll just see how deeply interconnected the New Testament and the Old Testament are. Someone has calculated there are 63,000 cross-references between the New Testament and the Old Testament. Someone has decided to put a graphic of this. Have a look at this. 
Now that is a graphic of the whole of the Bible. And what you'll see on the bottom edge is sort of um, uh, each um, chapter of the Bible and how many verses there are in them. And the arc of light shows the link between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Do you see that? What a beautiful rainbow. But do you see how interconnected they are? And here's the incredible thing. Do you see that long line in the middle? Dead smack in the middle is Psalm 119. The psalm that rejoices at God's word, his scriptures. Isn't that amazing? Dead bang in the middle. Well, that's how interconnected it is. Now, one of the joys of reading the McShane plan for many years is you just see this Old Testament promise, New Testament fulfillment. Josh McDowell, in his uh, book, uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, he uh, points to 300 references to the Messiah that are perfectly fulfilled by Jesus of Nazareth. It is one of the supporting facts that, we, that have encouraged many people to see that the Bible is God's word. Here's one of the glories of God. Before events happen, he declares that they will happen, and they happen. This, this is frequently what we see in Scripture, that no other God can do this. No other God is like the God of Israel, who can declare things before they happen and that they take place. And many of the amazing ways that the life and work of Jesus are, are perfectly fulfilled in, in, in um, perfectly fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament, confirm the reasonableness uh, for us to, to depend our lives and our futures in trusting Jesus as the Messiah. And if your faith is experiencing doubts, can I encourage you actually just to get a little notebook, get a little moleskin or something like this, and just start reading through the Bible and note down every time God makes a promise. And then, as you read, observe how God fulfills that promise. It will strengthen your faith that this is a God who can be fully trusted. Now, there are some excellent books out there that will help you see the big picture of how the Old Testament relates to the New. Uh, Vaughan Roberts' book, God's Big Picture, is uh, is a very helpful book. It's kind of partly based on Graham Goldsworthy's book, Gospel and Kingdom, that you can read in the Goldsworthy trilogy. It sounds like an exciting drama. It's not, but it's it's good theology. Uh, and, and, And with our children, you can really help our children. By um, just starting to read something like the Big Picture Story Bible or the Jesus Storybook Bible, which does such a great job of showing you the promises that we see in the Old Testament that find their fulfillment in Jesus. And it will grow and deepen your confidence and trust in God and in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is exactly what Jesus taught, of course. In Matthew chapter 13, in verse 16, he said this. Blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men longed to see what you see, but did not see it. And to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Do you remember how Peter struggled at this exact point of how, how could the glory of Christ fit with the sufferings of Christ? Do you remember that? Jesus said, who do people say I am? Peter finally declared it, you are the Christ. And then Jesus goes on to say, well, the Christ must suffer and be rejected and killed and be raised. And then Peter said, no, he rebuked Jesus 
for talking like that. It was such a struggle for them to see it. But of course, Peter was an eyewitness. Even though he fled from the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was betrayed, he did see Jesus crucified on the cross from a distance. He did see Jesus raised from the dead. He did see Jesus ascended to heaven. And on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit was poured out, Peter became this phenomenal preacher, preaching to the very people who begged for the blood of Jesus and declared to them that God had accredited that this Jesus was the Christ by his many signs and wonders. And that they had put him to death, but God had raised him from the dead. Here's the point. What the prophets longed to understand and see and they puzzled over, Peter amongst thousands of others were eyewitnesses that they were fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. And this was their preaching. They would go to the synagogues. They would read the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, and say, see what it says about the Christ? Let me tell you about Jesus. Do you see that he is the Christ? He fulfills every one of those ancient promises. This is, this is their preaching. This was their message. And here's an extraordinary thought. Uh, when we read of Samuel and David and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, uh, of what they spoke and what they ensured would be written down. Can you imagine? There's Isaiah. He's writing down the prophecy uh, and he's puzzling about it. Do you know who he's writing for? He's writing for you. He's writing for us. Verse 11. It was, uh, verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. What a privilege is ours. To have by faith, to be gripping this salvation, achieved and won for us by the Lord Jesus Christ. This same Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, that worked on these prophets, that drove them along so they spoke uh, the words of God, not the words of men was the same Spirit that came upon the Lord Jesus Christ at His baptism, <coughs> anointing Him, declaring Him to be the Son of God. And that same Spirit came upon Peter and the, the apostles on, on Pentecost so that they would boldly preach this same inspired word. And the Spirit is still given today to all those who proclaim this good news. So that when this good news is proclaimed, people are caused to be born again and to enter into this amazing salvation and this amazing grace. What a privilege is ours today. I hope you've never got bored with the Bible. It can only be because you're not reading it. It's because you, you need to dig back in and read and say, show me Jesus. Let me see Jesus. In every page there will be things that will point you forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ that will reveal something about his sufferings and his glory. We had it in the reading earlier today, didn't we? Isaiah 52 and 53. How Isaiah must have puzzled at this. How there could be this servant of God who would experience such terrible suffering and disfiguring. This servant who himself would be sinless. No deceit would be in his mouth. And yet, he would be pierced 
for our transgressions. He would be crushed for our iniquities. He would be exalted. And men would be appalled at the sight. How they must have puzzled at how this could be. But of course, Peter saw it with his own eyes. And he finally got it. And turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 22. We'll see this as we read through the, the letter of 1 Peter. How much he quotes the Old Testament. Because these scriptures are our scriptures now. For they point to the Christ. Look, as he speaks of Christ, verse 21 of chapter 2. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. Well, where's that from? Isaiah 53. This is what thrilled Peter's heart. What was spoken of by the prophets. They didn't see it. He saw it. He saw it. He met the one. He met the suffering servant. He met the Messiah King. There was no deceit in his mouth. And yet this glorious King chose willingly to die in our place. That our sins may be forgiven. That we may be right with God. That we might be people who live in grace. Did you pick up the way that uh, Peter refers to it very verse, uh, in verse 10? Concerning this salvation. What, how can we view this salvation? Concerning this salvation... The prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you. What a privilege is ours. We need salvation. We could not save ourselves. God sent a sinless Savior to rescue us. And what do we need to do to receive it? Well, on the day of Pentecost, Peter declared to the crowd what they needed to do. Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the promised Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. What a privilege to have this salvation in our grasp. To live our lives in God's amazing grace. The wonder for us today is not simply, well, you know, they, they only saw bits of the jigsaw puzzle, but now we see the whole picture. Well, that would be wonderful. But the point is, is this, that we are not only see the picture, but we are those who are recipients of this amazing grace. Think of it. Before the creation of the world, he had a plan. He declared it. He fulfilled it in the coming of Christ. And we have heard people preach this declare this to us in the power of the Spirit. And if you're a Christian today, you are a Christian today because God has used that very gospel to save you and me. What a glorious thing. The prophets long to see what we know today. They long to see what we experience today. And secondly, and this is a really quick point now, fret not. The angels long To look at God's grace at work in our lives. You see that at the end? Even angels long to look into these things. The prophets are looking forward to this. The angels in heaven long to look at the outworking of the glories of Christ in His grace in people's lives. Think about the angels. They they sang at the birth of Christ, didn't they? They comforted him in his temptation. Um, Jesus says in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
that he could have called down a legion of angels and they would have been there in a moment and rescued him. But he chose not to, so he'd be our savior. Can you imagine the angels straying in heaven? Call for us. We're ready to come. And how they must have looked with absolute horror uh, as the one to whom all heaven rejoices in. He, he was taken and beaten and spat upon and despised and rejected and crucified. And his body lay dead in a tomb. And as he rose from the dead, the joy with which they must have rolled the stone away. The joy of heaven as he ascended to God's right hand. In fact, it says in, in Revelation that heaven is, is full of the praises of Jesus as they declare, worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And the, the Bible tells us that the angels gaze in wonder at the outworking of this grace in our lives. Remember what Jesus taught? What makes heaven throw a party? What makes heaven rejoice? When one sinner repents. The angels rejoice over one sinner who repents. What must it be like for countless thousands of angels to be rejoicing? What must that be like? Uh, Andrew McCabe was staying with us uh, the last few days and I uh, had the privilege of showing him something that's a treasured possession of mine. It's on my hard drive, and it was the final match between Wales and England in the last six nations. <laughs> of course, England were due to get the Grand Slam, but on points, Wales could get it. And it was, as a Welshman, a joy to re-watch this with Andrew. Wasn't it a joy, Andrew? It was. <laughs> to see Wales beat England 30 points to three. And as the final whistle went, how... Most of the stadium rejoiced. And they went utterly berserk. Utterly berserk. And I, I get excited even now as I think of it. What must it be like for the angels in heaven to be rejoicing as one sinner repents? It'll make the best choir sing in the Hallelujah Chorus seem pretty average. I'm guessing. The angels long to look at this day of grace as the glorious victory of Christ, his death upon the cross, is played out in people's lives. And, and we get this privilege at Charlotte Chapel, don't we? We delight when we get these opportunities at, at people's baptisms to hear the stories of how Jesus interrupts people's lives and turns them around, makes them brand new people, saves them, forgives them, gives them new birth, gives them a living hope. Give them an everlasting inheritance. What a privilege is ours today to have this salvation that is all of God's grace. Do you want to let it go? Oh my, what a precious thing. How can something that causes such joy and delight and be so How could you let go? Of such a thing. This is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it.